recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagonia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 18th, 2015. Tonight we are going to present and discuss Bertrand Compare's sermon, Daniel's Fifth Kingdom. We're doing this now for several reasons. First, I've chosen to devote more time than usual, not really voluntarily, concentrating on certain other tasks, mainly technical. And therefore, I will not begin another in-depth Bible study until early January, very early January, the first or second week, when we shall commence with our presentations of the epistles of Paul, picking up with his epistle to the Philippians. Secondly, last week we began addressing both futurism and praetorism, which are methods of biblical interpretation that more or less refuse to see or even deny the unfolding of the revelation of God throughout our actual history. Nowhere in the Old Testament prophets is a long-term unfolding of the revelation of God clearer than in the book of Daniel. Daniel has his critics, but of course they are nearly all Jews. Bertrand Comparet did another sermon which was a pretty good general address of some of those criticisms entitled Daniel Freed from the Critics' Den. But because Compare only gave sermons, they are not always well documented. In fact, they are quite sparsely documented. So we hope one day, not this year, but one day to expound on that sermon also and to add documentation. Ultimately, Daniel is proven to be true and every Jew a liar. The Jews despise and reject Daniel, not only because of his precise foretelling of the time of the advent of the Christ, but also because Daniel, along with the revelation, beyond anything else in Scripture, proved conclusively that the Word of God is what we today would consider to be Eurocentric that the white Christian nations of Europe are indeed the seed of Abraham, and they are the nations which were promised to spring from his loins. That is also what Paul of Tarsus had taught throughout his epistles, and it all comes together there. And the truth of those assertions can be discovered in the classical histories and in archaeology. But Daniel is hated by the Jews. He should be loved by Christians. As we demonstrated some time ago in, in a presentation of 2 Corinthians, I believe it was, the Old Testament is for Christians. It's not for Jews. In our program last Friday evening, we discussed praetorism at length. In the light of Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 6 concerning all things being accomplished, 
Preterism is the term used to refer to the mistaken belief that somehow all biblical prophecy was fulfilled by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There are other versions of preterism which make the same mistaken assumption. But they move the date up to the time of the fall of Rome. Examining the prophecies of Daniel and seeing their clear fulfillment in history, we can see that the biblical prophecy continues to unfold well beyond either of those events and reaches to our present day. We also began a couple of months ago to critique and expand on certain of Bertrand Compare's sermons. And we plan to continue that as an ongoing project whenever we have an occasion. So because of the conflux which this sermon has with our ongoing address of futurism and praetorism, we have chosen to make this presentation here this evening. This is Daniel's Fifth Kingdom by Bertrand Compare. This version of Compare's sermon was prepared by Clifton Emmeheiser several years ago, and Clifton made some critical notes, which we shall also include here at the end of our presentation this evening. Now to commence with Compare. It is usually recognized that many of the Bible's greatest prophecies are found in the book of Daniel. Many of these are phrased in such obscure language that they were hard to understand until their fulfillment made their meaning clear. This is exactly what Yahweh intended, for he had the angel tell Daniel, recorded in Daniel chapter 12, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. However, Actual events which have followed through the centuries have fulfilled these prophecies so unmistakably that their meaning is now clear. And I would assert that that's absolutely true of Daniel chapters 2, 4, and especially Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapters 7 and 8. The books of Daniel are seriously out of order and need to be reordered, even though that's not generally recognized by the mainstream Bible commentaries, which I've noticed, that the um, book of Daniel needs a fuller commentary. This is certainly not the a Christian identity commentary. This is certainly not the place for it here, and we'll reserve our comments with that for now. We could not say that the magnitude of Daniel's prophecies are universally recognized and do not know why Compare said so. Rather, they are usually only recognized among pious Christians. But the enemies of Christ go to great lengths to deny Daniel's status as a prophet. And the book is even demoted by some to the status of 
historical fiction. However, Compare's opening evaluation of Daniel is correct in all other respects. And he continues, one of these prophecies is accepted by all churches that I know of, and they have agreed upon its meaning for the first four-fifths of it. Yet this prophecy so clearly sets forth the Anglo-Saxon Israel doctrines that it is hard to see how the preachers of these churches can be blind to it. This is an especial challenge to all preachers who deny the truth of the Anglo-Saxon Israel doctrines. Follow this with me in your Bibles, and then let me hear you deny it. And that's a very valid challenge. Daniel chapter 2 certainly indicates that the Germanic peoples are the people of God who would destroy all of the prior empires. It must be remembered, as we discussed it in our earlier criticisms of Compare, that in some sermons he refers to Anglo-Saxons, Anglo-Saxon peoples, and in other sermons, Meaning to refer to the same people, he refers to Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian peoples or nations. And then in even other sermons, he adds Germanic to the equation. So where Compare says Anglo-Saxon, we must imagine that he is speaking of the Germanic peoples in general. This becomes especially evident with the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning Daniel's fifth kingdom is revealed to be not only with the Angles and Saxons, but also in the Goths, Huns, Franks, Alans, Vandals, and other great tribes of the Germanic race. However, here in this particular sermon, Compare, as we shall see, leans towards the identification of Great Britain alone as Daniel's fifth kingdom. We would challenge that. We do not agree with that, and we will explain our position as this evening unfolds. Back to Compare, he continues by saying, I refer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which Daniel explained as a prophecy sent by Yahweh. This is all in Daniel chapter 2. You will remember that in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of such obvious importance that it greatly troubled him. Then upon awakening, he forgot his dream, so he could not tell it to his wise men to ask their interpretation. Being a typical Oriental monarch, and with that, Compare refers to the characteristic harshness of the Assyrian kings. Nebuchadnezzar is the first emperor of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which succeeded Assyria. Being a typical Oriental monarch, he found a quick solution to this puzzle. We read in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. 
The king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. The king, the thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. This was surely a startlingly unreasonable demand to make. These were sorcerers, old hands at the game of thinking up impressive but vague answers, vague and equivocal enough to let them fit their words into whatever might happen, an art they shared with some of the famous Greek oracles. But to be required to give an answer when you didn't yet know what the question was, this was too much to expect. They replied, there is not a man upon the earth that can know the king's dream. There is no king nor ruler that has asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a rare thing that the king requires, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. This did not pacify the king, who commanded that all the magicians, astrologers, and Chaldeans be killed, because their inability to explain his dream exposed them as frauds. Only Daniel and his Hebrew companions escaped this purge because Yahweh gave Daniel the power to recount the dream itself as he was able to explain it. In Daniel's own words, this was the dream recorded in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 43. And Compare is about to read Daniel's interpretation of the book of Nezar's dream. But let me say first that where it says in the answer of the priests and the magi, the magicians and the astrologers to the king, the Chaldeans being the, I believe, being the a reference to the Chaldean, ancient Chaldean pagan priesthood. Where it mentions the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh, we must bear in mind that those are the words of the pagan priests. Just like in the book of Jonah, we do not take the decree of the king of, uh, of Assyria for scripture. Here in Daniel chapter 2, we do not take the words of the Babylonian pagan priesthood for scripture. So we should always be careful in the Bible of who is saying what to whom before we create doctrines from it. Now perhaps it was wishful thinking, but here Compare made a rather irresponsible statement where he said that only Daniel and his Hebrew companions escaped this purge. Irresponsible because there is no evidence in the account that the purge was executed, and because the book of Daniel itself indicates that even if the purge had already begun, it was certainly halted. But Compare skips the pertinent passages where we read from Daniel chapter 2. Therefore Daniel went in to King Ariok. Now what happened, I'm reading from Daniel 2.24, and Compare stopped 
short of that. Ariok was the king's captain, and the book of Nezar had sent Ariok out to destroy all the priests and, and all of the magicians and the astrologers. So when Ariok got to Daniel, we see in verse 24, Therefore Daniel went in unto Ariok, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah, that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I had seen? and the interpretation thereof. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven. That's the difference between Daniel's perspective and the reference to the gods who could reveal it on the part of the pagan priests. But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and maketh known to the king of Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Now, that phrase, latter days, comes from the Hebrew term, akarif, and it's really just a phrase which means in the future, as we would say it in English, but the King James translators usually translated it literally. The proof of that is in Genesis chapter 49. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, Thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that reveals secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, the secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. So Daniel had asked Ariok when he first encountered him, the captain of the king, to cease, the captain of the king, to cease from the purge, the copyright references. Then in Daniel 2.48, we see that the purge must have been halted. Ariok must have ceased from it. Because we read that we read that Daniel was made chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. So we see that there were wise men remaining, and therefore the purge was not completed even if it had actually begun. That might be a minor issue, but I felt that it was important to point out that we shouldn't. And I've probably been responsible for doing so at times myself, but we really shouldn't make hasty comments concerning Scripture. Returning to Compare, where he commences with Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, and he's describing and citing 
Daniel's explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Thou, O king, sawest and beheld a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, and his feet part of iron and part of clay. Then Daniel went on to explain to King Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of this image. Thou, O king, art the king of kings, for the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven, he has given unto thine hand, and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, which is the arms of silver, given a little earlier in the description. And another kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Note the language here. That the kingdoms beginning from Nebuchadnezzar are described by Daniel as ruling wheresoever the children of men dwell and shall bear rule over all the earth. We had said earlier this evening that the book of Daniel and the Revelation prove the Bible and the dispensation of God to be Eurocentric. Now, all of these kingdoms which history shows to have been first the Babylonian and then the Medo-Persian and the Greek, held rule only over a majority of the white nations of their time. Therefore, where we see the phrases children of men and all the earth, we must know that they describe things limited to that very context white man and the parts of the earth which white men inhabit. None of these nations, none of these empires have ever ruled over sub-Saharan Negroes, Chinamen, or Australian or American aboriginals, Polynesians, Eskimos, subcontinent untouchable Indians, if I have to call them that. Therefore, these alien peoples cannot be imagined to be a part of the children of man or all the earth. The book of Daniel can thereby be said to be Eurocentric, even if at an early time the lands of the white race also included those portions of Asia and Africa which are in proximity to Europe. Here we must make a short digression and discuss some of the criticisms of Daniel. We can read on the Wikipedia page for Daniel the Prophet. If you ever want to read a hatchet job on Daniel, go read the Wikipedia article for Daniel, the biblical figure. We read on that page that most scholars see the book as a cryptic allusion to the reign of the Greek king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. 
175 to 164 BCE, their word. And the broad consensus is that Daniel never existed. Imagine that. Now, of course, Daniel is true. Most scholars are frauds, and the Wikipedia article itself is a Jewish fable. However, <coughs> excuse me, and this is important to note, even if Daniel did not write until 164 B.C., let's concede that. He knew things about ancient Babylon, which none of the Greeks had ever known. And when we compare modern archaeological discoveries to what the ancient Greeks, such as Herodotus and Strabo and Diodorus Siculus said about Babylon, and then we compare those archaeological discoveries to what Daniel said about Babylon, Daniel is proven to have had great knowledge about ancient Babylon, which the Greeks never had. I'll give a quick example off the top of my head. Herodotus tells a story about Semiramis building the walls of Babylon. And in the book of Daniel, it says that the book of Nezar built Babylon. So is it Semiramis or is it the book of Nezar? Well, when archaeologists, Semiramis was probably an Assyrian queen who lived in the 8th century BC. The Greeks only knew her as a legend, so she must have been a, um, a notable queen. But when ancient Babylon was dug out of the dust in the early 1900s, the bricks of the city indicated that Nebuchadnezzar, like Daniel said, had actually built the walls of the city and not Semiramis, like all of the Greek secular historians said. So that's one example, but Daniel knew more about Babylon than the Greeks did. And the Greeks probably received their information from secondhand sources during the Persian period, and much of it was inaccurate. But that shows by itself that Daniel really wrote when Daniel says he wrote. But aside from that, if Daniel had not written until 164 BC, then he could only have had any knowledge of these world empires up to this point, which encompasses the first three parts of the beast in the Book of Nezar's vision. At this time, Rome had not yet eliminated the Carthaginians from Africa. Rome didn't possess any territory in Africa, not yet. That happened in 146 B.C. and the end of the Third Punic War. At this time, neither did Rome have control over the Greeks. 
at this time, Rome was frequently at war with the Greeks, and especially with the Macedonians. But Roman hegemony over Greece and Macedonia was not assured until the final Macedonian War and the last of the wars with the Achaean League, which took place from 150 to 146 BC. After that time, it would still take Rome over a hundred years longer to control the balance of the Greek holdings in the Middle East and as far as the Euphrates, as well as in the West through Gaul and Iberia. So even if Daniel wrote before 164 BC, he nevertheless prophesied the coming of the Roman Empire long before it happened. The, the Romans didn't control Egypt until 31 B, AD, 31 BC, I'm sorry, the Battle of Actium. We'll mention it again later. So, if Daniel predicts a fourth beast that's going to be mightier than any of these first three beasts and rule over all the land, wheresoever the children of men dwell, that was controlled by the first three beasts, then that's still a pretty damn good prediction in 164 BC. So even if Daniel wrote sometime around 164 BC, like the so-called scholars claim, he nevertheless prophesied the coming of the Roman Empire long before it ever happened. And Rome didn't have any holdings. They didn't hold Gaul and Iberia until the time of Julius Caesar. There is, in fact, little reason, little real reason to think that Daniel had written at so late a time. And there is every reason to believe that Daniel had written when he said he did from the time of Nebuchadnezzar down to the time of Cyrus the Persian. Returning to Compare, where he is citing Daniel chapter 2 verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be a strong shall be strong as iron for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things and as iron breaks from all these shall it break in pieces and bruise now of course this must describe the Roman Empire as the Roman Empire had subdued the whole world up to the Euphrates and points further west than any of the first three empires of Nebuchadnezzar's vision the dominion of each of the four kingdoms of Daniel shifted progressively to the west, continuing with Compare and Daniel 2.41. Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be on it the strength of iron. For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, as the toes of the feet were part of iron 
and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Whereas thou sawest iron mingled with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And we won't really elaborate on the meaning of that phrase here. But here we have a clear picture of the fall of Rome, as well as the reason for its fall. This puts the preterists in the quandary. Those who believe all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 A.D., because Rome was not ever divided completely until the time of Theodosius I, the last emperor to rule both east and west, who died in 395 A.D. Even then, Rome and the West did not disintegrate completely, as Daniel described it, until the end of the 5th century. Daniel destroys preterism. And with this, the preterist must also imagine that there are other prophecies as well which were not fulfilled before 70 A.D., or even before the end of the 5th century A.D. But we must see them, acknowledge this first, before we can explain to them anything beyond this. Preterism is dead. Returning to Compare's comments on this passage. As I said, the churches are all in agreement that this image represents the Babylonian succession of empires. The head was Babylon itself under Nebuchadnezzar, who brought it to its pinnacle of power and wealth. In its day, it was the most important empire in the then-known world. Western Asia and the lands fronting the Mediterranean Sea, it ruled the entire Fertile Crescent from the Persian Gulf even to Egypt. The next succeeding empire of comparable power was that of the Medes and Persians, who conquered Babylon about 536 B.C., or in some sources and chronologies, 539 B.C. The kingdom of Media was absorbed in the rising power of Persia even before the conquest of Babylon. This Persian empire extended from northwest India and Afghanistan across the Fertile Crescent over most of Asia Minor, which constitutes modern Turkey, down through Syria and Palestine and even including Egypt. Now, actually, according to Greek sources, it seems that the Medes were autonomous and joined to the Persians by marriage among their ruling families for a period before becoming subject to Babylon. Cyrus, the Persian, for instance, was said to have had a Persian nobleman for a father and a Median princess for a mother. Back to Compare speaking about the Medo-Persian Empire. This was the empire represented by the breast and arms of silver in the Book of Nazar's dream. It was conquered and absorbed in the empire of Alexander the Great of Macedonia between the years 334 and 331 B.C. Alexander became king of Macedonia in 336 B.C. And by 332 B.C., he had conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Palestine, and Egypt 
He conquered the Tigris and Euphrates valleys in 331 BC, swept over Persia, Bactria, largely the same as modern Afghanistan, Compare statement, and into northern India. Alexander made it as far as Bactria and Sandiana and really never got across the Indus River. In 10 years, he had built up an empire covering all the then-known civilized world from Greece eastward to northern India. To its border is what I would say. In 323 BC, Alexander died in a drunken debauchery in Babylon. His huge but short-lived empire was the belly and the thighs of brass in the Book of Nazar's dream. Now, we do not really know that Alexander died in drunken debauchery, so Compare may certainly be repeating another fable. While Alexander kept his own personal historian, all of the contemporary writing disappeared soon after his death, and that alone, to me, is a sign of a more sinister cause for his death. The earliest accounts now extant are not written for a hundred years after Alexander died, or perhaps after he was killed. Now Comparet comments on the fourth beast of Daniel's vision, and he says, Fourth and last came the great empire of Rome, represented by the legs of iron. The city of Rome was founded in 753 B.C., and I would say perhaps 752, but it's not really important. And the Roman Republic, which began its greatness, was established about 55 B.C. Its empire began with the conquest of Macedonia and Egypt in 168 B.C. Eventually, the Roman Empire expanded, so they ruled Italy, Spain, Gaul, Macedonia, Greece, North Africa, Egypt, Western Asia Minor, Syria, and Palestine. Its frontiers were the Atlantic Ocean, Irish Sea, the southern border of Scotland, the North Sea, Rhine River, the Black Sea, the Caucasus Mountains, Armenia, to the middle of ancient Babylon, the Arabian Desert, Red Sea, Nubia, the Sahara Desert, and the Moroccan Mountains. While this is a sermon, and therefore perhaps Comparé can be forgiven for some of the more trivial inaccuracies, he seems to be very confused on the matter of the Roman Republic, and I just can't let that go. He says that the Roman Republic began its greatness and was established about 55 B.C., and that's not true at all. Rome was a kingdom from its founding up until the end of the 6th century B.C., about the time that the Second Temple was being constructed in Jerusalem. I believe it's a couple of years later. It might be like 509 or 508 B.C. is the end of the Roman kingdom and the beginning of the Roman Republic. The Republican system of government, which was put in place at that time, was only interrupted in times of war, where a dictator would be appointed 
temporarily, and then the dictator restored power to the state. That was Roman custom, and that system lasted for almost 500 years, during which time dozens of men were given dictatorial powers over the people of Rome and the Roman state and voluntarily surrendered those powers back to the people in due time, such as after a, a, a term of office or after a war was completed and the dictator was no longer necessary. Then, in 49 BC, Julius Caesar had been appointed dictator and had a new appointment every year until in 44 BC, he was appointed dictator in perpetuity. That led to his assassination, ostensibly because he was trying to subvert the Republican system, which had endured so successfully for so long. Caesar's assassins were actually the true Roman patriots. In the civil wars which ensued, Caesar's nephew and adopted son, Octavian, eventually prevailed, and he became the emperor in 27 BC, ending the Roman Republic forever. So the Roman Republic didn't start in 55, as Compare insists throughout this paper. The Roman Republic started in 509 BC, and it ended in 27 BC. Technically, Rome had already been an empire, but now, from 27 BC, it would have an emperor. Continuing with Compare, he says, its outstanding characteristic was its harsh and cruel treatment of its subject people. As Daniel said, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. I don't agree with that necessarily. Rome was harsh and cruel at times over certain people, but not always over all people at all times. Remember, there were two legs of iron. As the Roman Empire split into the Western and the Eastern Empire, often called Byzantine. Likewise, each of these two was an enforced mixture of different people, having nothing in common except that they were ruled by the Roman army, and when the military force failed, they broke up into their original fragments. And that's basically the definition of an empire. It's a government ruling over diverse peoples of different nations. That's what an empire is. America was founded as an empire because it ruled not only over the white colonists who devised the government, but also over the black slaves and native savages who dwelt within its, within its borders. So America was technically 
begun as an empire. And even if there were no blacks and no native savages, because the 13 states were technically each sovereign nations, and many of them did have their own unique stock, when I say unique, I mean particularly one, particularly one ethnicity or another from Europe, then even that would be technically an empire and not a nation, which is a, a, an organic unit of people of the same genetic stock and, and history and type of government living together. So that's the difference between empire and nation. Compré says, let's analyze this. First of all, let's note this kingdom. I'm sorry, I'm missing a paragraph. Compré continues, as Daniel said, as the toes of the sea were part of iron and part of clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Up to this point, all the churches are with me 100%. Their preachers all agree that these are the empires which Daniel's prophecy foretold, because they fulfill that prophecy so perfectly. Now we come to the place where most of the churches don't want to recognize Daniel as a prophet. Let's continue with what Daniel said. After concluding his description of the dream, and its interpretation as these four successive empires. The very next verse of Daniel 2.44 tells us, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Let's analyze this. First of all, let's note this kingdom spoken of by Daniel is not like the first four. They were the creations of pagan men. But this fifth kingdom shall be set up by Yahweh. When shall it come into existence? In the days of these kings. This is at some time during the existence of the first four empires of the Babylonian order. So let's refresh our memory as to their dates. And before we continue with Compré, I'd just like to say that Daniel destroys preterism. He also destroys futurism. As Compré says, this empire, which is going to last forever, is established in the days of those ancient kings. We're not looking for the establishment of a future kingdom. As Christ said, the kingdom of God is among you. It's here. It's established. We only await the destruction of our enemies. And vengeance belongs to our God. Let's also note here, that Babylon became an empire shortly after Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne, around 605 BC. Nineveh and Assyria, and the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh was its capital city, fell for good in 612 BC. 
But Assyria had been in decline for several decades, and many of the formerly subject nations gained their autonomy before that time, before 612. Babylon, Compare says, Babylon and its empire came to an end in 536 BC when it was conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. I would assign the date to 539 or even 540, but that's not important. The Medo-Persian Empire came to an end when it was overrun and conquered by the armies of Alexander the Great in 331 BC. After his death, Alexander's empire fell into four parts, as another prophecy of Daniel's had foretold, and that would be found at Daniel 11.4. Alexander died in 323 BC. These are the first three empires symbolized by Nebuchadnezzar's dream, so this leaves only the fourth and last, Imperial Rome. The city of Rome was founded in 753 B.C., and the Roman Republic was established at about 55 B.C. And that's a serious mistake which Comparate continually makes. Again, we must note that actually the Republic was established before 500 B.C. It began to disintegrate because of Julius Caesar in 49 B.C. and ended in 27 BC. Then Compare says something even more inaccurate. He says, expansion into an empire began with the conquest of Macedonia and Egypt in 168 BC. And let me say that just because Egypt's Ptolemy dynasty was Macedonian by race, that doesn't mean that when Rome conquered Macedonia, that it had control over Egypt. Egypt was always independent of Macedonia. I do not know why Capere made this assertion. Egypt was under nominal control of the Seleucids in the second century BC, and Roman influence in Egypt began growing from about the middle of that century. And the Ptolemies, the later Ptolemies, actually sought alliances with Rome to keep them safe from the Seleucids. But Rome would not control Syria and the Middle East for another hundred years, not until the time of Sulla. And Egypt was not annexed to the Roman Empire until after the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. The dynasty of the Ptolemies did not end until then, with the entry of Octavian, the future Augustus Caesar, into Alexandria and the resulting suicide of Cleopatra VII. Rome's expansion into an empire really began in Italy, and it was cemented with the final conquest of, the Mac of Macedonia and Achaia which is the Peloponnesus and mainland Greece, by 146 B.C. So Compare's claim that the Romans became an empire when they controlled Egypt at 168 B.C. is very wrong. 
He continues by saying, we need not cover in detail the history of the Roman Empire, only enough to note that just as the dream had two legs, the Roman Empire was divided into eastern and western parts by the emperor Diocletian in 283 AD. And actually Diocletian formed a tetrarchy. That would have given it four legs. But the tetrarchy quickly collapsed and Constantine restored the empire. Constantine made a new capital in Byzantium. That gave Rome two legs. The division became permanent at the death of Emperor Theodosius in 395 AD. As we had noted earlier, Theodosius was the last emperor over a unified Roman Empire. The two separate empires, the Western generally governed from Rome and always called Roman, and the Eastern governed from Constantinople, the original name of which had been Byzantium, and generally called the Byzantine Empire, continued for some time after their separation. The Western, or Roman Empire, fought a losing battle against the ever-increasing pressure of the invading people, who were the Israelites, moving from Scythia into their new European homes. And here it must be noted that for the most part, the Romans and some of the principal tribes of the Greeks, especially the Dorians, the Macedonians, the Danans, were also Israelites as were many of the Iberians, Britons, and Gauls that the Romans had formerly conquered. All of them had migrated from the east at one time or another since the captivity in Egypt nearly 2,000 years before this time. Compare continues, and he says, The Visigoths were an Israelite people, largely Christian by 350 AD, and I would say that they were largely Christian for, for perhaps several decades to a century before that, but they were Arian Christians. They adopted the Arian heresy, which came from Thomas Arianus in Egypt, in Alexandria. So the Visigoths and the Alans and other Goths had converted to Christianity, but they converted to an Alexandrian heresy, the, the, the Arian form of Christianity. They were driven west by the pressure of the invading Huns. They entered the Roman Empire in 376 A.D., scoring a decisive victory over the Roman armies in 378 A.D. So Rome ceded them certain Roman territories. They invaded Italy in 400 A.D. and forced Rome to pay a ransom in 408 A.D. That year, Rome withdrew its armies from Britain to aid in the defense of Rome. It was to no avail, for in 410 AD, the Visigoths captured and looted the city of Rome itself. In 412 AD, they moved on into southern France and northern Spain, ruling Spain until the Moorish conquest in 711 AD. In 476 AD, Odoacer, the general of the German mercenary soldiers in the Roman army, rebelled, then captured the capital city of 
the Western Roman Empire and deposed the last emperor, Romulus Augustulus. This date of 476 AD is accepted by historians as marking the end of the Western Roman Empire. Incorporated is trying to establish Daniel's phrase in the days of these kings. Actually, the Goths first began invading Rome about 238 AD for reasons other than pressure from the Huns. The land is simply better and more appealing, and the climate a lot better south of the Danube. Compare is correct, however, that in the later half of the 4th century, there was pressure on the Goths from the Huns. According to Procopius, and Compare would never have accepted this, according to Procopius, an early 6th century historian, who knew both Goths and Huns rather well because he was always he was also a secretary in the army of Belisarius, the famous Byzantine general. According to Procopius, both the Huns and the Goths had descended from the Massagene of Asia, the Scythians called Massagene. Procopius often refers to the Huns, who were formerly called Massagete, and he uses the two names synonymously. Compare continues. Meanwhile, the Eastern Empire, generally called the Byzantine Empire, with Constantinople as its capital, claimed to be ruling even the Western Roman Empire, although this was a claim rather than fact. Actually, the Byzantine generals under Justinian in the early part of the 6th century BC did conquer the Goths of Italy who were generaled by Totila and Vitigas and the Vandals of Africa who were generaled by Gelimer. So those are the three fallen kings of the vision of Daniel 7. So the Byzantine government did have a, a, a legitimate claim to conquest to Italy and North Africa for a very long time. Enemy pressures were building up against the eastern or Byzantine Empire borders, pressures too strong to be resisted. By about 650 AD, the Muslims had conquered Arabia, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, North Africa, and Sicily. The Byzantine Empire was reduced to Asia Minor and the Balkans. Then in 1074 AD, the Turks captured most of Asia Minor. Then came enemies from an unexpected source. The combined forces of Venice and the Fourth Crusade captured Constantinople in 1204 AD. I believe that included Normans. And also taking all the Balkan territories, they set up the short-lived Latin Empire of Constantinople. 
When the authority of the Byzantine Empire was restored in the city of Constantinople around 1260 AD, all the Balkan territories were lost. They broke up into many small, independent nations. Remember, Daniel said the toes were part iron and part clay and would not stick together. For two centuries more, a mere shadow of the Byzantine Empire continued, consisting of just the city of Constantinople and its environs. The Turks captured the city in 1453 AD, ending the last pretense of this existence, of this leg of the Roman Empire. And Compare's purpose is to extend in the days of these kings to 1453 AD. That's why he's making this long explanation concerning the duration of the Eastern Empire. In our discussion of Revelation chapter 13 in Christreich, we interpreted the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2 a little differently, imagining them to be represented in the similar vision of Daniel chapter 7 by ten horns, and the original ten senatorial provinces of the Roman Empire. They were Achaia, Africa, Asia, Crete and Cyrene, Cyprus, Gallia Narbonensis, Hispania Baetica, that, that one's a tongue twister, Macedonia and Thessaly, Pontus and Bithynia, and Sicily. So they were mostly around the Mediterranean Sea in Italy, southern Spain, southern France, Greece. Northern Africa, and the islands. And we imagine that they, those ten toes, were the ones that were part of iron and part of clay. The racial substance of those lands, even at that time, was mixed, as a lot of Egyptians and Edomite Jews were transported throughout those lands as slaves, especially in the first centuries B.C. and A.D. Returning to Compare. The year 1453 A.D. marks the end of the four world empires of the Book of Desert's dream. Remember now the words which many preachers won't face because it ruins their doctrines. In Daniel 2.44, Daniel records, In the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom will not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. We must find Yahweh's own kingdom in this world, not in some remote future to which the preachers would like to assign it, but now. It must have had its beginning in the days of these kings. And therefore, we must study this period, which we have seen extends from Daniel's own time, about 600 B.C., to not later than 1453 A.D. This is the period in which the kings of the Babylonian succession of empires ruled, as we have just learned. We would rather imagine 
the Byzantine Empire of 395 to 1453 AD to be but one portion of Daniel's fourth beast among other portions after it fell apart. As Daniel 2.42 said, that the fourth kingdom would be partly strong and partly broken. Compare is correct to assert that the Germanic nations, which were in a state of upheaval for several centuries before the fall of Rome, where they finally finished settling into their historic living places, were Daniel's fifth kingdom. It is they alone who broke in pieces all of the kingdoms which preceded them. And we will discuss that to a greater extent a little later on here. To continue with Compare, why do the preachers like to ignore this verse of Daniel's prophecy? There is a great kingdom which was set up within that period and which still exists, just as Yahweh promised Daniel it would. But it is a nation of Anglo-Saxon Israel. And if they recognize this as a kingdom which the God of heaven set up, they can no longer deny the truth of the Anglo-Saxon Israel doctrines. So they would rather try to make a liar out of Daniel than to admit that their own doctrines are in error, and Yahweh has kept his promises to his people Israel. If it shocks you to think that the nations of Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, and Scandinavian people today are the Israel of the kingdom of Yahweh, then be prepared to be shocked, for that is just what I am about to prove. Now here, Compare says Germanic and Scandinavian. A little later on, I'm going to chastise his work for leaning towards British Israel doctrines, and we will discuss that when the time comes. The kingdom of Yahweh is the only everlasting kingdom. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto Yahweh, and all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee. For the kingdom of Yahweh is Yahweh's, and he is the governor among the nations. Now this is also important that Compare quoted this, as we shall see later. Psalm 145 records, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endures throughout all generations. Daniel 4.3 adds, How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. This kingdom of Yahweh's is not just an abstract idea, lost somewhere among the clouds. It is a very real kingdom upon this earth. It has not been governed as well, while mere men rule it, as it will be when Yahshua returns to be its king. Nevertheless, it is still the kingdom of Yahweh here on earth. Remember the words of Yahshua at Matthew 21:43, as he told the Jewish usurpers who ruled in Judea, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of Yahweh shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. 
and that's also important to note later. And it is certain that Christ had meant a nation, which is a, co- a people of common history and origin living in a common culture. Christ didn't say a government or a country or a church. Calvary continues by saying, Yahweh repeatedly promised to establish a kingdom. Yahweh's own kingdom in this world and placed descendants of King David upon the throne of Yahweh's kingdom. In 1 Chronicles 17, Yahweh's promise to David was, I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will settle him in mine house and in mine kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forevermore. David believed Yahweh's promise, for in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, he said, Howbeit, the God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be a king of Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be the ruler and of the house of Judah, the house of my father. Among the sons of my father, he liked me to make me king over all Israel. Of my sons, for Yahweh has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. This is a very real and substantial kingdom on this earth. In his most famous parable of the tares sown among the weeds, in Matthew chapter 13, Yahshua said, The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them that do iniquity. Certainly the children of Satan, those who offend and do iniquity, are not in heaven with Yahweh. So they will have to be gathered from the sundry places where they reside. They are still here in this world living here among the nations of Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, and Scandinavian Israel. You meet them and have business dealings with them every day. So this is the same kingdom of Yahweh of which Yahshua spoke. And here, as we pointed out last Friday, is the most glaring problem with the assertions of the preterists. They claim that all prophecy ended in 70 AD. Yet there are many prophecies and words of Christ in the gospel that his enemies would eventually be rooted out and destroyed permanently, cast into the fire. Yet, speaking of 70 AD and the destruction to come upon Jerusalem, Christ only said at that time his enemies would be taken captive into all nations for their punishment. So which is it? Clearly, all prophecy was not fulfilled then, and it is still not fulfilled today. We have not seen the fulfillment of these words of Christ in Matthew chapter 13, which Compare cites here, and which are similar to promises in Obadiah 
and in other prophets. So the preterists, they're wrong. The Bible leaves, continuing with Capere, the Bible leaves, no doubt, that when Yahshua returns to rule the world, he will sit upon the throne of this very same kingdom. In Isaiah 9, 7, which all churches recognize as prophesying of Yahshua, tells us of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom. In order to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal for Yahweh will perform this. Confirming this in the New Testament, we find the same thing in Luke chapter 1. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Yahweh shall give unto him the throne of David his father the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. This is the same kingdom of Israel which Yahweh established under King David, a kingdom of Yahweh's saints who were the children of Israel. Daniel 7.27 confirms it. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now we know these things. One, the time within which Yahweh will set up the fifth great empire, which is in the days of these kings of the Babylonian series of four Gentile empires between 600 B.C. and 1453 A.D. Two, the kingdom which Yahweh will set up is an everlasting kingdom, and only the kingdom of Yahweh is everlasting. Three, it is an Israel kingdom in fulfillment of Yahweh's promises to David and to Yahweh's chosen people, Israel. Now, the word Gentile here is a misnomer. Heathen would have been better. The children of Israel are the Gentiles of the New Testament, the nations of the promise. Using the word Gentile, as it is used in the King James Version, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul insists that the Gentiles to whom the promises come are Israel according to the flesh. Comparate continues. For a little foundational information, we must go back even before 1500 B.C. The Israelites were then in Egypt. In Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, the throne had been promised to the tribe of Judah until Yahshua takes the throne, meaning Shiloh. Judah had twin sons, Pharez and Zarah, but Pharez was born before Zarah, so Pharez inherited the right to the throne. Ancient writings record that the descendants of Zarah were very able men, even King Solomon being compared to, to them in wisdom, since they could never take the throne in Palestine, where their ability could be used in governing the people. A large part of the descendants of Zarah left Egypt even before the general exodus, looking for places where their abilities could be fully used. They migrated northward along the coast of Asia Minor and into parts of Greece. 
They founded the city of Troy and also the city of Miletus. It is accepted in British history that after the fall of Troy, as described in Homer's great poem, The Iliad, Brutus the Trojan led a party of Trojans to the west and finally landed in England, where they founded the city of London. The place where he landed is marked by a monument. Now, I have a great issue with that. Compare is getting really fast and loose with ancient Greek poetry. The travels of Brutus the Trojan were actually described in the Aeneid, which was written by the Roman poet Virgil at the time of Julius Caesar and around the time that Caesar was invading Britain. The Iliad leaves off with the battle, the war between the Danan Greeks and the Trojans. It leaves off before the city of Troy falls, before the Trojan horse story. That's not found in the Iliad. Then there's the Odyssey of Homer, which picks up after the fall of Troy. And there is a line in the Odyssey alluding to the Trojan horse, but it's only a brief mention. The in-between part, the actual taking of the city, was not, mentioned, was not described in the Iliad or the Odyssey. In the Odyssey, you could see the aftermath that the city had been looted and sacked and pillaged and a lot of the Trojans taken into slavery. But the actual fall of the city and the doings were not described at any length. There was um, a, an ancient epic cycle, it was called, of Greek poetry, which probably filled in all the other parts of the story. Most of them are now missing. They're lost. They're lost to time. So we can garner the portions of the story from the Iliad and the Odyssey, but there's no mention of Brutus the Trojan in the writings of Homer or Hesiod or any of the ancient Greeks. Brutus the Trojan, that story comes from the first century B.C. Roman poet Aeneas. And I've always put that story on the back burner. Even though there is archaeological evidence of um, a presence from the agency in Britain at an early time, and we could find some of that in a book by E.O. Gordon called Prehistoric Britain. The story of Brutus the Trojan, I keep on a back burner because that story came to us very late in history at a time when propaganda connecting Julius Caesar to Britain would have been very convenient for Julius Caesar. So I keep that story kind of on the side. I wouldn't teach it as history. 
But it's certain that Brutus was not mentioned by Homer. It's a first century writing, first century BC writing, not a seventh century BC writing. While I know of no record that the Trojans actually founded Miletus, Miletus was occupied in ancient times by the Carians, who were said to be Phoenicians, and they took their kings from among the Trojan princes, the Carians and the Colicians, who were also Phoenicians. And the Carians are listed among the allies of the Trojans in their famous war in Homer's Iliad, Book 2. Comfort continues, the city of Miletus became powerful and famous, and it certainly was. He says that its coins were stamped with the Lion of Judah. I haven't seen them, but that's okay. It is very plausible. Malaysian mercenary troops were hired by Egypt as border guards. It established several colonies, and Miletus was actually famous for colonies around the Black Sea, along the Danube, and as far as Spain and Ireland. And he says, the most important of which was in Spain. This Malaysian colony in Spain became powerful, and an expedition they sent to Ireland captured the whole island. Before that time, there were several tribal kings in various parts of Ireland, but the Malaysians united them into one kingdom. Yoke the Heremon became the first king of Ireland somewhat before 600 B.C., the Malaysian kings ruled Ireland until the overthrow of Roderick O'Connor, the last native Irish king, by the invading Anglo-Norman armies under King Henry II of England in 1171 AD. The Irish of today, who have names beginning with Mick or O, are descendants of the Malaysians. <laughs> and I'm not entirely sure about that, but I won't dispute it. For many centuries in Ireland, the Malaysians were considered to be the legitimate royalty. That is true. The same was also said of the Trojans from early times, in spite of their having lost the war to the Greeks. And in fact, Julius Caesar had asserted his right to rule in Rome by his claimed descent from Ahenius, the prince of the Trojans who had come to Italy. And that story is told by the Aheniad, and then the Brutus story is told by Virgil in the Aheniad. Now, the Aheniad story is not told by Homer. It may have been told by other Greek epic poets, poets, I'm sorry, who are now lost, but it was not told in the Iliad or the Odyssey, even though Aheneus is mentioned, I believe, in the Iliad. But all of the Greek historians, Herodotus and, and, and um, Strabo and Diodorus and a lot of other Greek writers, between the time of the Romans and Caesar and Virgil, back to the time of Homer, did accept that the Romans descended 
from a colony from the Trojans after the fall of Troy. Compre continues. In the early centuries of the Christian era, Ireland was known as Scotia and its people as Scots. More and more settlements were made by them on the northern part of the island of Great Britain until, by a little after 500 AD, they founded a separate nation, Scotland. For a time, Ireland was called Scotia Major and Scotland was called Scotia Minor. Meanwhile, the raids of the fierce Norse and Danish Vikings on the east coast of England had become so terrible after the withdrawal of the last of the Roman legions in 408 AD. The Britons invited settlement along the Channel Coast by the Jutes, Angles, and Saxons. Jutland is a part of modern Denmark. The Angles coming from what is modern Schleswig in Germany and the Saxons were part of the people who gave their name to Saxony in Germany. You will recall that before the Israelites left Scythia, two of their tribes were already known as the Angli, the Latin form of Angles, and the Saxons. So by the year 600 AD, we have Ireland, Scotland, and England settled by Israelite people. Norse and Danish Vikings also settled areas along the English Channel coast. In my discussion of historic proofs of Israel's migration, I had mentioned the proof of the migration of the Israelites from Scythia into northern and western Europe, so there can be no doubt the settlers of the British Isles are Israelites. Now, we cannot say that the term Saxon belong to any specific single tribe, as Comparet depicts here. Rather, the Persians used the term Sake of all the Scythians in general, as the Greeks had also used the terms Sake of those Scythians who had migrated into Europe during the Persian period. Only later did the Greeks begin to call the Sake by another general name. Galatahi. So there were individual tribes with distinct names who had been called Sake or Galatahi in general. Later, the name in the form of Saxons clung to one portion of these tribes in the north who had never been Romanized. They never had fallen under Roman dominion. And that's the same with the Franks. The Franks were called Franks because they had never fallen under Roman dominion. Continuing with Compare. However, this period did not bring a consolidation of them into a single kingdom. Only Ireland was united under a single king, while the island of Great Britain was broken into many petty kingdoms, always at war with each other. We must look to a later date to find a consolidation into one kingdom. And I believe Ireland was many petty chieftains called kings, but they had a great king, at least frequently. Here Compre's British Israel inclinations are beginning to show. The British and the Anglo-Saxons in Britain have no greater claim to be an Israelite kingdom than any of the Germanic nations and principalities on the continent. Furthermore, 
the Angli or Angles were not limited to England even after the Anglo-Saxons, the Angles and the Saxons had gone to Britain. There were Angli, plenty of them, who stayed behind in Germany. And they're mentioned by historians as being on the continent after the 5th century, 6th century AD. And there's all kinds of German names, Ingelheim and, and Engelstad, that came from the Angles. And if you ask a modern German, they'll say, oh, those cities are named after the English. I've heard one say that. They are not named after the English. They're named after the Angles, some of whom went to England. Because British Israel and later Christian identity studies took root among English-speaking people, its interpretations of prophecy have evolved into a very Anglophile ideology. The German principalities have often elected a single king. The Holy Roman Empire was elected by German princes and have therefore been organized in a manner which also fulfills the descriptions given in Daniel and the other prophets. Yahshua Christ being king of kings and lord of lords, it is evident that his kingdom on earth is found in a collection of earthly principalities and not necessarily under a single earthly throne as it was under David. Otherwise, how could the patriarchs bear promises of being separate nations? In my opinion, it is time that the Anglophile view of Christian identity be retired for a better understanding. But Compare surely shows signs of the Anglophile view here, which came out of British Israel, and I can't entirely agree with it. You, you, you cannot elevate Great Britain by itself to being the kingdom of Yahweh established in the days of these kings. The Germans and the Franks and other tribes on the continent competed with England in every respect as Christian kingdoms. Compre continues by saying, it is well established history that the Norse Vikings raided the coasts of Gaul, modern France, for centuries, even capturing and looting the city of Paris three different times. Finally, in 911 AD, King Charles II of France ceded the province of Normandy on the Channel Coast to a Viking chief named Rollo, who became the first Duke of Normandy. This was done on condition that Rollo would settle large numbers of Norsemen there to form a buffer against further raids by the Viking chiefs. In fact, the word Norman is really just a form of Norsemen and shows the racial makeup of his population. From Normandy came Duke William of Normandy, William the Conqueror, in the year 1066 AD, and a successful invasion of England. His Norman followers were Israelite Norsemen of the same racial strain as much of the population of England. 
And actually, several counties of England had already been populated with Norsemen before this time. Mercer, Northumbria. England also had several Norse kings before William of Normandy in the short-lived dynasty of Canute in the early 11th century, several decades before William of Normandy. William the Conqueror established the kingdom, which has continued without breaking since the year 1066 A.D. True, there have been battles between competing claimants to the throne, but the successful contender never was a conqueror setting up a new kingdom. He was always a claimant to the existing throne of the Kingdom of England. The kingdom has had an unbroken existence since the year 1066 A.D. It is a well-established historical fact that the kings of England and the queens in the two reigns, when there was no king, have all been descendants of the King David of Israel. Thus, Yahweh's promise in Jeremiah 33:17 that David shall never lack a descendant to set upon the throne of Israel has been fulfilled. And there are, there are lines of kings in Europe older than 1066 A.D. Comparet paints a pretty face on William the Conqueror. However, William gained the throne of England not by conquering it, but by the grace of God and the Anglo-Saxon nobility. Then he betrayed them and brought in the Jews to divide the lands and farm the taxes. William the Conqueror was not good for England. Let's get back to Daniel, going back to Caparay. Let's get back to Daniel and his five kingdoms. All the churches agree that history has proven the four kingdoms represented by Nebuchadnezzar's dream to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Alexander's empire, and Rome. Then Daniel goes on to say in Daniel 2.44, in the days of these kings, Daniel has been careful to mention only four kingdoms, the last of which we know to be the Roman Empire. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Daniel never speaks of the toes or the clay in them as kings or kingdoms. The continuity of the throne of David through Ireland, Scotland, and England is historically established. Now, what about the time of its establishment as the Kingdom of England? As we observed, the final end of the Roman Empire came in the year 1453 A.D., but the present Kingdom of England was established in the year 1066 A.D., well within what Daniel calls the Days of These Kings. And again, Comparet plays the Anglophile. The early Anglo-Saxon kings, just like those of Germany and Scandinavia, claimed the right to rule by their descent from a historical Odin, an Odin who brought his people from Asia, which is frequently mentioned in Saxon chronicles and other Germanic literature. And it is apparent that the earlier kings of the Irish and the Scots also intermarried with all of these families of other nobles over time. The English kings, either before or after the time of the Normans, have no better claim to royal blood above any of the other noble lines of Europe. 
Daniel's fifth kingdom is not a single Germanic nation, but rather it is a collection of Germanic nations under Christ. The Anglo-Saxons and Normans by themselves were not the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands of Daniel 2.33 and 2.45. Rather, the Germanic nations collectively fit that description. And the Goths and the Alans and the Alamanes and other Germanic tribes, the Vandals, did a lot more to break in pieces and destroy all those previous four kingdoms than the English ever did. Compare continues. All the churches are willing to recognize Daniel as an inspired prophet through the interpretation of the vision of the dream as representing the four successive world empires. In the days of these kings, the kingdom of England was established and it became a world empire many times greater than all the previous world empires of world history. If this is not the kingdom set up by the God of heaven, as Daniel says, then how did Yahweh happen to overlook the most remarkable kingdom in all human history? No, this isn't according to the accepted doctrines of most churches. They would rather reject the word of Yahweh than admit any of their doctrine might be mistaken. It is a bitter pill for them to swallow, for it proves that we who preach the Anglo-Saxon identity message are right. Yahweh did set up his kingdom in the days of these kings. And this concludes Compare's original sermon. Historically, England is the most treacherous of all of the Saxon kingdoms, having been under the thumb of the Jews since the days of Cromwell, as well as in the days of William of Normandy, the Germans and the Irish, the Scots and the Franks, as well as the related Scandinavians and other people, all have as large a role as the English had in making great the lands abroad that were established under the English. All of these nations together are Yahweh's kingdom. Now we shall offer Clifton Emmeheiser's critical notes of Compare's sermon. We must give Compare much credit here for an exceptionally well-presented lesson in Bible prophecy and the important history surrounding it. Like he says, nominal churchianity as a whole recognizes the four kingdoms as represented by Nebuchadnezzar's dream as the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman empires. Then suddenly, without any good reason for doing so, they change from a historical view of prophecy to a futurist view. Whereas an historical view is the only correct one. They then project Daniel's fifth kingdom 2,000 years in the future, well out of range of the days of these kings. As for the days of these kings, Compare stated, it must have had its beginning in the days of these kings, and therefore we must study this period which we have seen extends from Daniel's own time about 600 B.C. to not later than 1453 A.D. And this is the period in which the kings of the Babylonian succession of empires ruled. Compare also stated in part 
The city of Rome was founded in 753 B.C. This date for the founding of the city of Rome brings up an interesting situation. For Rome in 753 B.C. would be the beginning of the days of these kings rather than 600 B.C. as he declared. That would make Daniel's the days of these kings from 753 B.C. until 1453 A.D. That would include Daniel's own time when he wrote his prophecies. And since Yahshua Christ will not take David's throne until after his second advent, as Christ himself said, he is not included in Daniel's The Days of These Kings, for he said at John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this age. Therefore, there is a striking contrast between Daniel's, the days of these kings, and Christ's, my kingdom is not of this age. And actually, Christ had said, my kingdom is not of this society or cosmos. But the effect is the same. The Roman Catholic Church claimed that it was Daniel's fifth kingdom, since it was set up in the days of these kings. But as Compare has already pointed out, Christ said that the kingdom would be given over to a nation and not to a pope. The modern Protestants resort to futurism because they cannot acknowledge the claims of the Roman church. The truth is that the kingdom of Yahweh is a collection of nations, the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Germanic, and related peoples who are formerly known as Christendom, but who today or the camp of the saints, surrounded by the armies of the devil. The futurists, as well as the preterists, would have a hard time accounting for that. As I said in the first programs of this series, criticizing Bertrand Compare, we want to commend him and be grateful for what he had done right and how he pointed the way for us to study further but we have to recognize, correct, and improve on whatever he has left us. Christian identity is true, and it is the only true attitude towards history and scripture. It is the only true understanding of history and scripture. And we have to get it as right as we can get it. Tomorrow night, Yahweh willing, we shall address futurism and praetorism once again with methods of interpreting prophecy. Part 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.